So last week we looked at Hosea, this week we're in the book of Joel, and as we go through this series on the minor prophets, one of the things that we'll notice is that there are two themes that run right the way through the prophetic writings, the themes of repentance and restoration. Repentance and restoration. Those are not words that we use every day, but we're all familiar with how this works. Uh, have you ever had a falling out with someone? Well, assuming that it was you who was in the wrong, that's not always the case, but assuming that it was, if you maintained feelings of anger, jealousy, scorn, resentment, or hatred, then that relationship could never be properly restored. Only if you repented of those feelings could the relationship be restored. And I don't mean just saying that you were sorry, but that you made a decision not to harbor those feelings, not to entertain those unkind thoughts. You made a decision not to behave in a way that would damage that relationship. Only then could the relationship be restored. That's the principle of repentance and restoration. And anyone who's ever fallen out with someone and then made up with them again understands this principle. Of course, the analogy breaks down because when we have a falling out with someone, uh, it's not normally one-sided. I mean, it can be, but generally there are two parties and both have a part to play in it. But when it comes to our relationship with God, if there's a problem, of course, it's only us that need to repent. I'm a flawed and sinful human being. If I fall out with God, who is pure, holy, just, and good in every sense of the word, then the fault lies 100% with me. So repentance leads to restoration. In human relationships, repentance usually leads to restoration, although it depends on the other person and whether they're willing to repent and forgive. But with our relationship with God, repentance always leads to restoration. And this was a key part of the message of the prophets. And Joel, in particular, brings into focus what repentance is and what it leads to. So what do we know about Joel? Well, actually, we know less about Joel uh, than most, if not all, of the other prophets. For example, we, we can't be exactly sure when he wrote, but presumably he was writing after the time of Judah's exile in Babylon because temple worship was in full flow when he wrote. Uh, And this was known as the second temple period. You may have heard that before. Uh, King Solomon built the original temple. It was destroyed by the Babylonians who then took the Israelites into captivity where they remained uh, for about 70 years. Uh, After which the people began to return to Jerusalem and they rebuilt the temple, although the rebuild was never as impressive as the original. But this is known as the second temple period, that time from when the uh, temple was rebuilt all the way through to AD 70 when it was destroyed uh, by the Romans. And so Joel was most likely writing uh, in this early second temple period. Uh, Another thing about Joel is that he calls Israel to repent But we're never specifically told what Israel is to repent of. And I guess Joel assumed that, like him, we'd been reading other prophetic writings. And so we already know what Israel were guilty of. Their their, their idolatry, injustice, and fakery. 
And our passage today begins with a warning of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord. And it's interesting that this should come as a warning because the day of the Lord was seen as a good thing by the Israelites, uh, a day when God would liberate his people from oppression and injustice. The original day of the Lord was when God delivered his people from slavery in Egypt, and it's been celebrated every year ever since the Passover celebration. And Israel were hoping and waiting for a new day of the Lord when God would again deliver his people from the world's corrupt and oppressive powers and structures. And Joel turned this idea on its head. And he said, you know, all that bad stuff that you're hoping will befall your enemies. Well, that's all coming your way because you're no different from the surrounding nations. Because you have turned your back on God, uh, the day of the Lord is actually not something to look forward to. Uh, It's not good news for you at all. And Joel presents them with an image of an army of locusts. Uh, As one commentator put it, the image of the locusts aims to portray the voracious, mindless, ruthless devastation of an invading army. makes me think of the German invasion of Russia in World War II, Operation Barbarossa. Three million German troops, together with 3,000 tanks, uh, artillery pieces, all the rest of it, poured over the Russian border. It was a huge army that needed food and fuel, and the soldiers pretty much took whatever they wanted, leaving the local populations bereft of everything. And the Russians employed a scorched-earth policy, which means they retreated, but they didn't leave behind anything that the Germans could possibly use. So they literally burned farms and crops and buildings, everything. So the impact of the invasion was to leave this massive wasteland as if a giant swarm of locusts had, had been through and devoured everything. And invasions in the ancient world were of a similar ilk. Everything got destroyed. And so this image of an army of locusts is a vivid and a powerful one. It's one that's easy for us to get our heads around, even today. And in verse 11 of our reading, it says, Who can endure it? In other words, this is going to be so terrible. But then in verse 12, it says, Even now, declares the Lord, Return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. In other words, it's not too late. Even now, this disaster can be averted. It's never too late to turn to the Lord. I heard about a uh, woman of 98, and um, she I guess you'd say she'd been an atheist for her whole life. And then at that ripe old age of 98, she converted. She gave her life to Jesus. And apparently she'd been quite a morose character. And when she became a Christian, she was beaming. She was grinning from ear to ear. And uh, she did a little dance, if you can imagine a 98-year-old lady doing a, a little dance. And the person who told me about this said, it was wonderful. Risky, but wonderful. And she died not long after um coming to Christ. It just goes to show in this life, it's never too late to turn to the Lord. So we know that we can't have restoration without repentance, but we can't have repentance without realization. People need to realize that they're going in the wrong direction before they will turn around. Uh, 
often it takes a dramatic sequence of events to bring a person to that point. There's no doubt that God does punish Israel in the Old Testament. Israel were constantly walking out from under God's umbrella of protection, as it were. And there are serious consequences to that. But God didn't punish Israel capriciously or arbitrarily. And the purpose was always to lead Israel to repentance so that the relationship could be restored and so that God could pour out his blessings on his people. And the punishment always followed numerous warnings. It often comes after hundreds of years of being warned by the prophets. God's punishment never came out of the blue. God sent the prophets that the Israelites would realize that there was a problem. When Caleb was about two, he drew a full-length crayon mural along a white wall that we had in our dining room at our old place in London. Uh, And the most impressive thing about this mural was that he drew it so quickly. I don't know how anyone could apply so much crayon to a wall in such a short space of time. Uh, But at that stage, he didn't know any better. He didn't know that this large white wall wasn't for, for drawing on. Uh, as far as he was concerned, it was a blank canvas. Now, of course, over the years, and more so when the children were very small, we've had a number of conversations about drawing on the walls. And so if he did it now, uh, there'd be consequences because he knows that that's not something uh, that we do. Uh, Israel had been warned repeatedly about breaking their covenant with God, warned repeatedly about idolatry and injustice. The amazing thing is... God is saying, even now, even now, if you repent and turn back to me, these consequences can be avoided. And of course, that's what God wants. It's like catching a 12-year-old crayon in hand, although probably by that point they progressed to spray paint. So catching them red-handed, graffitiing the interior of your home and saying, look, we'll say no more about this. If you own up, you say that you're sorry and you promise not to do it again. So even though God does punish Israel, we can see that the Lord really is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Throughout the Old Testament, we see the devastating consequences of Israel's sin, but God always longs to show mercy to his people if only they will confess their sin and have a change of heart. And in verse 13, we see that this is very much a matter of the heart. It says, rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God. In other words, to avoid this calamity, Israel need to genuinely repent. Repentance is basically having a change of mind. It's a decision to choose God's will over our will, to choose God's way over our way. In the ancient world, at least in that culture, to rend or to tear one's clothes was a sign of grief and repentance. In a, in a similar vein to shaving one's head or wearing sackcloth or putting ash on the head, all these other things that we hear about in the Old Testament that people did as a sign of mourning, grief, loss, and repentance. And it all looked very convincing, but it didn't necessarily signify a change of heart. It didn't necessarily signify True repentance. Rend your hearts and not your garments. Saying we're sorry, no matter how impressively we say it, means nothing unless there is a change in our behavior. If there's no change of heart, there's no repentance. 
as a young man, I used to get myself into a lot of trouble, um, mainly through drinking and fighting. And on occasions, I'd find myself in court. And I'd be quite anxious about this because um, if I was given a prison sentence, a custodial sentence, uh, I, I would have lost my career in the Royal Marines instantly. And so I would dress very smartly and I would have a troop officer there to represent me, to speak for me, to, to speak, speak uh, for my character. Uh, I'd prepare a statement to say how much I regretted whatever it was that I'd done. Uh, and a lot of effort went into that court appearance. But it was really just a charade. I wasn't that sorry for what I'd done. I was sorry for getting caught. And I didn't want to face the repercussions. And when the inevitable was upon me, I expressed remorse. But it was really a selfish kind of remorse. It wasn't true repentance. I did eventually repent of all those things and many other things uh, when I gave my life to Jesus. And that was true repentance because I've not done anything since that would land me in court. That's not to say that I'm perfect. Of course I'm not. Uh, but I'm just saying that true repentance means a change of heart. And that will lead to a change in our behavior, the, a change in the way that we live our lives. And Joel, what Joel is saying here, or rather what God is saying through Joel, is this. He's saying, don't do all this outward stuff to make it look like you've repented, when in reality, your heart is unchanged. True repentance is more than running away from sin. It's also running to God. I think sometimes we can convince ourselves that we've repented when really we haven't. For example, a lot of uh, uh, people manage to avoid the pitfalls of their youth, not because they've repented, but because they've worked out that certain patterns of behavior create all kinds of problems for them, and they don't want those problems in their life. Or there may be certain kinds of sins that we no longer have the opportunity to commit. So using extreme examples, but you know, a man who beats his wife, if he meets in a terrible accident and loses the use of his arms, of course he's not going to beat his wife anymore. Or a, a promiscuous womanizer who grows old and is no longer attractive to women, he's going to stop womanizing. The outward manifestation of the sin might have stopped, but the sin still exists within the heart. Indeed, there might be many sins that a person would commit if they're given the chance. They're just not given the chance. Just because we refrain or desist from certain sinful patterns of behavior doesn't mean that we've repented. It doesn't mean that we're any more moral. You see, our sin and rebellion against God has less to do with what we're doing outwardly and more to do with what's going on in our hearts. Rend your hearts, not your garments. Because someone can look like they're doing all the right things outwardly, but inside, there's something wrong with their heart. And Joel reminds us of God's character. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. God longs to restore his people, to bring them back into relationship so that he can pour his blessings upon them. But that restoration can only follow genuine repentance, so a rending of the heart. And Joel elaborates on, uh, he, he shows us what true repentance will lead to. And he returns to the theme of the day of the Lord when God brings justice and judgment to the whole world. 
Remember, this concept first came about when God delivered his people from slavery in, 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 in Egypt. And for most of Jewish history, a second day of the Lord was expected and anticipated and hoped for, a day when Israel would be freed from whatever oppressive empire predominated at the time. But Joel turned that idea on its head. Far from being something to look forward to, uh, Joel gave the day of the Lord negative connotations to do with uh, not the nation's judgment by God, but Israel's. But then Joel flips it again. And he talks, this is going through the, the, the whole book of Joel, he talks about the final day of the Lord uh, that will be preceded by an outpouring of God's spirit. Allow me to read Joel 2, 28 to 32. This is Joel speaking about the final day of the Lord. And afterward, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your old men will dream dreams. Your young men will see visions. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. By the way, that cosmic imagery is there to show uh, that these are going to be world-changing events. So the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Joel's message was relevant to the people of his day because if they repented, they would avoid God's judgment or the consequences that would follow God's judgment. But it also uh, is relevant to us because we are living in this new age of the spirit that Joel, Joel points forwards to in that passage that I just read. Uh, those events, the outpouring of God's spirit, are clearly linked with the day of Pentecost. In fact, in the book of Acts, when it talks about the day of Pentecost, uh, that very passage is quoted, the, the outpouring of God's spirit on the whole church. So we are living in this new era of the spirit and waiting for the final day of the Lord when Jesus returns to judge the nations once and for all. And it says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who repents, everyone who rends their heart, not, not just those who look good outwardly and do all the right things, but those whose hearts are inclined towards God, they will be saved. So the final day of the Lord is a terrifying prospect for those who refuse to repent and a future day of great rejoicing for those who do repent. If you've repented, if you've turned away from sin and turned towards Jesus, you will be saved. Repentance leads to restoration. And God longs that everyone would be saved. God urges everyone to turn around, to turn to him. Repentance doesn't mean perfection. Repentance doesn't mean perfection, but it does mean that your life is on a different trajectory. And because we're still grappling with our sinful nature, we have to keep repenting, turning around, rending our hearts, turning back to God, staying on course, learning to walk in step with the Spirit who has been sent to help us on this journey and to prepare us for the day of the Lord, the final day of the Lord, when Jesus returns to make all things new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that when we turn to you, you forgive us, you restore us. We receive 
uh, everlasting life. And that is um, a sure thing. But we also recognize, Lord, that we, we keep going off track and we, we keep needing to, to turn back to you uh, every day to make that decision to turn away from sin and to turn towards you. And we know, Lord, that um, our salvation is not depending on what we do, but what you have done for us. But because you've been so gracious and merciful and loving towards us, we want to obey you. And so we pray that you'll help us to, to keep repenting, to keep turning away from the bad stuff and turning towards you each and every day of our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.